the issue of uh, biblical sexuality, particularly in the climate in which we live, is one of those subjects that you think, oh, that's a bit hard to, to look at, that's a bit hard to discuss. It was some time ago that Tim and I had uh, together discussed that we would do a couple of week series on biblical sexuality. Before the postal plebiscite thing happened, or b before it was announced, and uh, so we thought that was a bit of a co coincidence, but maybe it was an interesting coincidence. And even this week, we were able to have a live stream conference about uh, same-sex attraction and all of those sort of issues uh, all day on Wednesday. And so we, we know that God has led us to this point of speaking on this subject. It's a subject that I think a lot of churches won't speak on because they're a little bit scared about. It's something that some won't address because they're afraid of what others might think or what others might say. At the outset, whatever opinion you might hold, you're welcome here. Whatever sexual orientation someone might display in their lives, they are welcome here. For this is God's place and God asks us and Jesus says, love your neighbour as you love yourself. And we will find that there are people in our community with whom we disagree on this sexual issue and uh, their orientation we might struggle with, uh, whatever it is, LBG, LBGTI, um, I get them all mixed up. Uh, whatever sexual orientation, God calls for us to love people. I see in social media and I see in the media so much of this hate speech and so much, even between Christians who differ, speaking against one another, let's stop. Let's stop and say, God, what is it that you say? Not throwing just opinions around, not based in culture, not based in what seems good or what feels good, but what God says. And so this platform in the next two weeks will not be a platform where we will speak politically this is not the place to speak politically. God calls me to be, and us, to be people of his word and to discover and to continue to discover what his word says to us and to come in line with his word. It's not just a forum to have disagreement. Disagreement's okay, but this is not the forum in the next two weeks where we just slam someone who disagrees with us. It's not a forum to have that hate session with those who disagree either. There's too much of that. And it's not the place that Jesus would want us to be. But I encourage you that if you need to talk on this issue with me, with Tim, with uh, the elders, that you come and talk to us face to face. I'm asking you not to send emails or notes or uh, just have the disagreement amongst yourselves and let it fester. Let's talk together. Let's dialogue together. Remember, since I've come here, one of those favourite sayings that I have, in this church, there's going to be no lumpy carpet. There's not going to be stuff shoved under the carpet. We're going to take it out and we're going to examine it and talk about it and come to a resolution together, even if we disagree with something. And even if you send me an anonymous note, I'm going to put it in the bin. Even if it's an encouraging one, put your name to it.
I'm one who says, if you're going to say something, say it face to face. That's my style. So, for me, in the next two weeks, I'll be basing my uh, teaching around, as the foundation, this passage that we read out of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and uh, branching out from there. It's not a subject that we can cover fully in two sermons. It's a big subject. And it's something that we are dialoguing and talking about in ad infinitum, it seems anyway, in our, in our society. It's one of those subjects that we need to continue to keep alive and to continue to be open and honest about. So, we see Paul in this book of 1 Corinthians speaking to the Corinthian church. And I know that for some of you, you will have heard me give a little bit of background about Corinth, but I want to just paint a little bit of a picture for you so that it gives the context in which he speaks. If this thing I can turn it on will be set. Okay, so he, he speaks in Corinth. Corinth is that little place, as you can see, I've got a pointer on here. Oh, look, isn't that marvellous? I never use it. So Corinth is there in the year 146 BC. Uh, it was, who was it, Julius Caesar or someone? Yeah, Julius Caesar destroyed the city. And then 100 years later, around uh, 46 BC, uh, the building began to happen again of the city because they see this little isthmus. Uh, there was such a vital part of trade between Greece and then uh, Achaia, between Athens, Sparta. Even though you could go around the sea, there was an important uh, land bridge that you could do trade. So Corinth was a really important and strategic place to build a town or build a city. And so it began to be rebuilt no one was living there, rebuilt from uh, uh, BC 46 and then completed about AD 50 when Paul was writing to uh, Corinth. Um, and so it was this cosmopolitan commercial city where people came to trade. It wasn't one of those cities where you uh, grew up in and you had generations of people uh, living in that city uh, or my grandfather or great-grandfather was part of this city. No, it was a place where people came to to make money. And they came often leaving families in, in other towns and coming specifically to the place to do commerce and uh, to make money. Now, in Corinth or near Corinth and the hill above Corinth, there was a, a temple and the temple was dedicated to the worship of Aphrodite. Now, Aphrodite was the sex goddess. Uh, she was that... Um, or goddess of sex, yeah, that'll do. And it was situated on the ridge above the city. Now, every night, a thousand temple prostitutes would come down from the, the temple and uh, ply their wares in the, in the city, and uh, you can, we know what that happens. And um, so that was a part of the nature of that city. Now, imagine being a Christian in that city, a new Christian. Imagine having your mind changed from being with prostitutes all the time. You see, in that city, sex was just open slather. If you wanted it, you got it. Uh, and, and if you wanted it in a group, you got it. And it was just that open debauchery that was happening as a part of this city. Now imagine being a Christian because Christians believed that sex was sacred and, and uh, money was not. So sex was something that needed to be kept sacred, but money was just to be used. Easy come, easy go. But in the world of uh, Corinth, they believed exactly the opposite. 
money was sacred and sex was just easy come, easy go. So you can see how when becoming a Christian or a follower of Jesus, your whole mindset changed to the opposite of what was the culture in the city. Christians shared their table, but they did not share their bed. The Corinthians shared their bed, but they didn't share their table. What was happening in the Christian church was a number of things. New Christians were falling back into some of their old ways and they were succumbing to the temptation of where, from where they had come. If we were to read in 1 Corinthians 5, the previous chapter, it talks about that, of being going back into sexual immorality, going back into those ways. And you can imagine, you, do, you, you can understand it, can't you? That they'd been in those ways... They'd come out of those ways, but they're still surrounded by those ways. You can understand how easy it was to be pulled back into that lifestyle, hey? You can understand that in our own culture, because here in our own culture, Western culture, sex is no longer sacred. It's an easy come, easy go. And I think money, we come back to almost money being sacred, although, yeah, with interest-free and all that stuff, easy come, easy go. So... Um, and credit cards and stuff. But you can, you can understand why these new Christians in Corinth were falling back into their own ways. Now, there were two things that were being said about sex. Firstly, in, if we were to read in the first verse of uh, 1 Corinthians 7, and um, I'll just quickly, if I can jump over to there, I'll quickly read that to you. Um, it says, Now, concerning the matters about which... You wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Don't, he's saying, what you're saying to me is that it's good not to have sex, even if you're married. So some of them were going over to this very prudish way, and we even see it in Christian church sometime in certain uh, Christian churches, very, oh, you can't have sex, no. I remember uh, growing up and older people under whose influence I was, I won't say who they were, not my parents, but um, sex is only for having children and that's it. Okay. Um, and so that was part of one of these ideas that was happening in the Corinthian church. Sex is something that it's better not to have it at all. The idea that sexuality was, was of, any of any kind was something that would pollute you, something that would damage you. If you want to be spiritual, don't do it. Even in marriage. I can understand where some of those people were coming from. You can understand that they had come out of that open debauchery and now they just wanted to stand against that which polluted them. You understand that? Also, on the other hand, there were people who were saying that everything is permissible. We read it in chapters, uh, verses 12 and 13. I'm free. I'm not under the law anymore. I'm a Christian. All things are permissible. It's okay. And they, they were just saying, what they were saying was sex was just an appetite, like food was an appetite. If you needed food, have it. If you want sex, have it. It's just an appetite. Um, if it feels good, do it, because it's natural. We've heard that saying throughout our, the last number of years in our own culture. Now, Paul says about these two views that were being exhibited that both come from a negative view of the body. 
He says that both are wrong. Neither, either you're saying that the body is bad and you're prudish, don't do sex, or the body doesn't matter, do it any time. So it's a matter of the body. Both are unchristian points of view. Because he says that sex is good. It is a glorious gift of God. It's created by God. And he's saying that the physical, the body, is good. See, there are different, uh, without going into it, there are different philosophies that are happening through Greece at this particular time. And, and uh, some of these different views of the body, either it was evil or if it was good, or if it was just for debauchery. Our bodies are good. God counts them as good. Maybe we want to change them in shape sometimes, particularly when you're 55 and gravity's taking over. You want, to ch- you want to go back and change the shape back to when you were 21. But the body is good. And there's a couple of things that I want to share with you. And the first one I will share with you today. And the second one I'll share with you next week. So that means you'll have to come and hear it next week. There is, and this is the point, there is no sex without commitment. We're talking about sexuality, which is good and a glorious gift and something that God wants us to exercise within certain bounds. Firstly, he speaks of the body. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is helpful. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not allow anything to control me. Food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food, but God will make them both unnecessary. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. I love that uh, verse 13 in the message. You know the old saying, first you eat to live, then you live to eat. Well, it may be true that the body is only a temporary thing, but that's no excuse for stuffing your body with food or indulging it with sex, since the master honours you with a body, honour him with your body. I like that one. That's really quite good, isn't it? The meaning is this. Everything is permissible. Even if everything, as he says, as he's talking to these people, He says, even if everything was permissible, you shouldn't do things that are destructive. You shouldn't do things that enslave you, that hold you in a prison, apart from Christ. You shouldn't do those things. Food is for the body, etc. Food is... is, um, Read it back in the other one. Food is for the stomach or for the body, and the body is for food... But God will make them both unnecessary. He's saying the stomach, the body, everything is for the Lord. He's saying that everything that you have, your body, your emotions, your psychological part, your well, if we talk about it like this, the material part or the immaterial part, the part you can see and the part you can't see, all belongs to the Lord. And so... Everything is for him because by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also 
Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. Now some modern commentators argue against the biblical view of, of sexuality within marriage by using this verse, these verses and saying, oh, it's only talking about temple prostitutes. Well, that's not right. Because it's referred to in other parts of the, of the Bible, which we'll walk through. What Paul is doing is setting an argument around not having, or against sexuality outside of marriage. That's what he's arguing. Sexual experience or expression is only to be within marriage. Now let's get our heads away from marriage isn't just about signing a piece of paper for the Commonwealth of Australia that says you're married. Remember back in verse 9, neither the sexually immoral will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, if we understand what sexual immoral means, in the Greek term, it comes, it's actually the word pornoi, or comes from the word porneia, from which we get the word pornography. It's not talking about pornography, but it's, it says it means fornication, or it means sex outside of marriage. That's what the word means, porneia. And so what he's saying is those who are expressing their sex outside of marriage are doing the wrong thing. And we'll understand why soon. It's absolutely wrong, he says, for you to be physically one with, something, with someone without being personally one with them. You can't separate the body from everything else, the material from the immaterial. You understand? Are you all tired yet? Are you all happy? Are you all with me? Anybody sleeping? Okay. So you can't separate. So um, it's wrong for you to be physically one with someone without being personally one with them. When two bodies are joined together in sex, in the interlocking of the two uh, people in sexual inter intimacy, you literally become one body. If you're physically vulnerable to someone without anything else, I'm saying that I'm willing to be physically open with you, but not in any other way. Let's just have sex and be done with it. Let's just do it and that's okay, nothing else. There is a commitment mechanism that God builds into us. If you're going to be intimately involved with someone sexually, it triggers the, the commitment mechanism. And when, even when you're not a, a believer, there's something within you that says when you're sexually engaged with one another, there's a sense of commitment wanting to move forward together. I see it in, in young teenagers who engage with them sexu sexually. The boys are a little bit different to the girls. The boys are sort of, let's hang another scalp on the teepee. But the, the girls, um, <laughs> well, the girls are saying, Oh, I've given myself to you now. What's next? And they're saying nothing. That's not what Paul is saying. That's wrong. If you engage sexually, you engage totally. 
In the sex act, you make, sex act, you make yourself totally vulnerable. When you're with someone in nakedness, you're totally vulnerable to them, aren't you? Paul is saying that what you do with your body must be a reflection of what you do with your soul. Because the body's important, the soul's important, the whole person's important. If you say, I want to be vulnerable to you physically, but that's all, you're saying, I just want to be free for myself. I just want to live a totally uh, self-consumed, self-righteous life. It's not about you, it's all about me. But you can't split yourself up. What happens in your body affects what happens in your spirit, what happens in your mind. What happens in your mind affects what happens in your body, what happens in your spirit. And it's all interlinked together. You can't split them up and compartmentalise them. And Paul is saying that Christians, we have an incredibly high view of sex. He's saying this is a wonderful, wonderful, glorious gift that God has given to us. It's precious. And it's to be treated like that. And it's something for the whole person. It's something that reflects all of you. So when you engage in that way, you're saying, I'm giving my whole life to you. I'm giving my whole self, my whole person to you. And the other person is, I'm giving my whole person to you. So what's God's purpose in all of this? God's purpose in, in sex is a way of completely giving yourself to someone else. And it's only to be used in that way. See, sex is not an end in itself. It's not the centre. Sex is not the centre of our being. If you have sex with someone outside of the lifelong commitment of marriage, you're saying that I don't want to be permanently and exclusively committed to you for my whole life. I just want this little bit. You're doing something only with your body and you're, and you're not backing it up with the rest of your life. You're splitting your soul from your body. Paul says we have too high a view of the body to split it off from the soul. We have too high a view of that. When the two come together, he says, the two shall become one flesh. Is that there? Yeah. And he's quoting Genesis 2. He's not quoting Matthew 19 when Jesus says it because it wasn't written then. He was quoting uh, Genesis 2. What was written there? But he's, he's quoting Genesis 2. That is why a man leaves his father and mother, is united to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, flesh can mean the physical body because flesh is the word in Greek called carne. And I've shared that with most of you before. Chili con carne means chili with meat. And a flesh, carne, means meat, you see. And it can be talking about flesh, but here in this context, it's not talking about the, the meat, it's talking about the whole person. And when the Bible says in Acts 2, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, it doesn't mean I'll pour out my spirit on all the bodies. You know, I'll pour out my spirit on all people. And so in this context, when he talks about flesh, uh, Genesis 2, Matthew 19, and here in 1 Corinthians 6, it talks about pouring it out on uh, the, giving your whole body, your whole, not, sorry, your whole person. They shall become one person. Okay? 
they become a whole new life together. It means that when we join together, it's all about the whole life of the other person, not just their body. They're not just a bit of meat. When we have sex without the commitment, we cheapen our view of our body and it becomes just a thing we use for our own means. Our body is an important thing. Our bodies are members of Christ, as, it says, as Paul says in this uh, chapter. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? There it is, himself. Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? No, I won't. Never. Because that's separating my body from my soul. And it's only not just doing it to me, it's doing it to the prostitute as well. When, I say, when we say, I'll give you my body but not myself, that's not your whole self, it's only half. Sexuality is not just to get pleasure, it is to get pleasure. It is a gift for pleasure. It's not just for procreation, it is for recreation. Come on. It is. It's a joyous gift. But it's God's way for us to say to another person, I belong completely and exclusively to you. The thing we all want more than anything else is for someone to, be, to love us and to be committed to us completely. All we want, and that's one of our insatiable needs, is we want that to happen for us and for them to never leave. We know that sometimes it happens, that, that, that it breaks up and there's leaving. But there is that insatiable need within us that we need someone to be completely committed to love us and never to leave. Sex is for that. Not for anything else. Otherwise, you're missing out on God's best for you and for his purpose. That's why he's saying, don't be sexually immoral. Don't have sex with a prostitute. Don't have sex with anyone else unless you're willing to become one flesh with them. God's plan. We're not too far away from finishing. Thank you, Jesus. Verse 17. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. See, here's an analogy. Paul is saying something really profound in Ephesians 5, he talks about when a husband and a wife unite, it is the picture of Christ and his people, his church. Remember, the thing we're sitting in is not a church, it's a building. Look at the people around you, that's the church. We are the church, the people are the church. So in Ephesians 5, this is the really wonderful picture that this um, committed married couple do together is we're showing the picture of Jesus and his people. God created sex not just to give yourself to, someone el to somebody else wholly. He created it as a foreshadow or what we call a type a type of what is go it's going to be like when we, when we unite with Jesus in heaven. So the glorious, wonderful uh, sexual expression, that gift that we have, that is only a little tiny skerrick, a little tiny shadow of the glorious uniting as the bride of Christ we will have when we walk down the aisle and there's the groom waiting for us and we unite together with him. See, this is about what it's for. It's about to point to him. 
you see, and the relationship we have with him. The most wonderful sexual interaction between a husband and wife is just a foretaste, just a little shadow. The love and the devotion of a husband and wife to one another in marriage illustrates the supreme love and devotion of Christ to the church. So it's about, it's showing the picture of how much Christ loves us, you see. And I'm going to talk about singleness in just a sec. So singles, don't worry about that. We'll be there. You see, Jesus loves us. Jesus delights in us. Just like a groom delights in his bride. I did a wedding yesterday. I've done a couple of hundred weddings in my life. And one of the things that you notice, it's like standing out like a sore thumb. You're standing up here, the groom's there and the groomsmen are there and in walks the bride. And he goes, <laughs> Sometimes I've got to get my hanky out and wipe his face a bit. But it's, <laughs> is this, oh, here she comes. Oh, I got a fright when we got married because Barbara walked down the aisle crying and I thought, oh no, is, it, is she having second thoughts? No, she was just overwhelmed with the excitement of it all. And you see these grooms just delighting in their bride coming down the aisle. What will it be like when Jesus sees us coming down the aisle? His delight. He will be just so enraptured with us as he is enraptured and delights with us now. He clothes us with his righteousness. Come and I clothe you with myself. Sex inside a marriage is an indication of the commitment of the ultimate relationship with Jesus. It is the commitment wholly and solely to one another. In all of this, Paul is saying that it's all about God and not all about us. Not about our rights, but about Jesus' rights. Imagine God coming to you and saying to you, I want to pour out my love to you. But if you want to go off and follow other gods, that's okay. We'll just have a quiet time for 10 minutes every now and again. He doesn't say that to us. He comes to us like in this relationship, I want you wholly and solely. I'm giving myself wholly and solely to you. I died for you. I rose from the dead for you. I'm interceding to the Father for you. I want to give myself wholly and solely to you. And we say, oh no, I've got other things to do. I'll come back maybe tomorrow for 10 minutes. And then, you see, a lot of people want to sleep with God, but they don't want to marry him. They want all the benefits. They want to ask for stuff when things get tough. They don't want to commit to him and him alone. You wouldn't let anyone do that to you, would you? No, you wouldn't. That's why it's hard to follow Christ sometimes. That's why it's hard because we have to give up things. When you follow Christ, you might have to give up stuff. But it's not out of necessity, out of duty, it's out of love. Because we give ourselves wholly and solely to him as he gives himself wholly and solely to us. 
Remember Luke 9, 23, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me, Jesus says. That's not to say that singleness is second best. I've heard quotes from Christian people saying that singleness is almost second best. Singleness is not second best. All those singles who are here with us today. Singleness is really a special thing. Singles... Hands up all the singles. You are the foreshadow or type of what it will be like in heaven when the church shows our love and devotion to Christ. Marrieds, we show what it is for Christ to show his love and devotion for us. Singles... In your life, whilst you are single, you are the foreshadow of the type of what it is that we show our love and devotion to Christ. Isn't that beautiful? So singles, singles aren't second best. Singles are really important. This is seen in a, in a single Christian person's love and devotion for Jesus. Now, even in the midst of sexual temptation... Even in the midst of having to push those things aside, even in the midst of having needs that aren't met, it's the sacrifice of devotion to Christ. So the whole purpose of sexuality, according to the Bible, is to focus on relationship with Christ. Sex expressed outside of the committed marriage relationship, according to God then, is sin. It's rebelling against God's purpose, his plan, and his pattern. It's rebelling against his best for us. Now, lots of us get it wrong. We do. But we have a God, when we come to him with confession and we ask forgiveness, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why? Because he wants to give himself wholly and solely to us. Isn't that an awesome thing? I just can't get over that. That God wants to do that for us. Therefore, even though the world centers on a person's identity in their sexual orientation... The Bible centers our identity in our Christ orientation. Do you get it? Even though the world would say, your sexuality is your whole identity, Jesus says, your position in me is your whole identity. My identity is that I am a heterosexual male person. Or, my, my, or it's not that I'm a heterosexual male person. My identity is that I am centred in Christ. And I happen to be a heterosexual male person who's centred in Christ. He delights over his bride. He clothes us with him and his bride delights in him. How do you identify yourself? How do you identify yourself not just in your heart but in your practice? in your behavior, when the world centers itself in sexuality, where's yours? In Christ. Even for the same sex-attracted person who comes to Christ, their, their identity is not in their same-sex attraction. Their identity is in Christ. 
because they choose to follow Christ. And we're going to talk about that stuff next week. Even though we see God's design in sex and we might adhere to it, that doesn't give us the right to point the finger at those who might disagree with us. I just want to say that before we finish. God has a plan. God has a purpose. That first boundary that we saw was that of commitment. Sex is for commitment. Or no sex without commitment. The second boundary, we'll see next week. Let's pray. Oh God, our Father, today, as we have looked at this really sensitive subject, particularly in the world around us, firstly, would you forgive us for times that we may have had critical thoughts or critical speech towards those who disagree with us? Lord God, we know that you call us to love our neighbour as ourselves. And we don't want to engage in hate speech. We want to engage in Jesus' speech. So as we walk this journey together, understanding biblical sexuality, and even though it might engender some things within us that grate on us or um, upset us or make us think, would you challenge us through your word? Not through the words of a, a speaker, a person, but through your word. Would you help us to see your pattern, your purpose, your plan, so that we will fall in love with you more? And I pray to God that our lives, sexually expressed or single, would be an expression and a type and a foretaste of what it is to be totally united with Jesus. Totally together with you. Help us to God. And I pray over every person in this room today that if there are people here who have real difficult issues in this area, whether it might be same-sex attraction, whether it might be difficulty uh, resisting temptation, for each person in this room to God, help us to know that sexual expression is not the center of our being. You are. And help us to keep our hearts and our minds fixed on you. Minister to each of us, dear God, in ways that you know how. And change us in Jesus' name. Amen.